Hello and welcome to the Chris Yeh Podcast. I am, as always, Chris Yeh, and I am pleased to welcome back yet again Scott Johnson from Blitzscaling Ventures for another of our monthly podcasts on looking at the venture landscape and specifically at Blitzscalable Deals. Scott, welcome back. Thanks, Chris. Great to be back. Well, Scott, what's on the agenda for today? Well, we want to look at some data that we've accumulated. As you know, we track deals done by the top 30 VCs, and that's how we surface the deals that we look at when we have these discussions. And it's interesting to look at just the top 30. There, there's a lot of data out there on venture in general and trends in general and aggregate data, but putting a microscope on just the investors that see every deal and essentially have unlimited capital and observing their behavior is informative, it's useful. We're just gonna look at deal count for today, but there are a lot of other things that we'll be looking at in the future. So we're gonna do that, then we're gonna look at a bunch of deals that did cross the wire and one that uh, could change the world in a way that everybody talks about how they're gonna change the world. Well. Uh, the, this one, which is a fusion deal, just might. And so it should be a really fun discussion today. Excellent. Well, let's start by looking at the deal count, because I think given the fact that we're recording this while we're still in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic of 2020, people are probably very interested in understanding how has this pandemic affected the pace of deals? Well, yeah. And so intuitively, you'd think it would slow down. And it did. But it's, uh, it's picking up steam in a way that we didn't expect. So if you look at the data, let's look at last year. So last May, there were 94 deals by these firms. And in April, there were 95. In March, there were 95. So we're talking about sort of 90 to 100 range all spring right through June. And then there's a dip in July and August as people take a break and go on vacation. But, uh, and then it picks up again in September. But really all last year, during the quote unquote fundraising months of January through June and then September, October, November, 90 to 100 deals, the most active month was 104. So super active year last year, as I remember, there was just a banner number of financings and amount of money invested. And this year started off more slowly, even before the pandemic, uh, December, which is always a slow month, was about was 47 deals, so about 50, and then another 47 deals in January. So a real backing off in December and January. And that's not typical for January. January last year, sorry, in, in, 19, uh, in 2019 was 90 deals. So 47 is about half that number. And that's before anybody shouted fire in the theater. So that's pretty interesting. And February was also pretty slow. And yeah, there was some inkling of COVID at that point, but it's interesting. I, I wonder if these firms were backing off, just trying to digest all the deals they did the prior year, or if there was some forecast of what was gonna happen with the COVID crisis, because those numbers were unusually low. But so I would- What would happen after that? So I wouldn't attribute this to the COVID crisis. I would attribute it to what I call the WeWork effect. So you may recall that WeWork tried to come out sort of towards the middle of the year. And this started generating wave after wave of bad press around the startup world and companies. And there was just a general feeling that things were going south. This is one of the reasons 
why during the first part of 2020, it seemed like every single venture capital firm in the world was out there trying to raise money because there was a general sense that the party was going to come to an end. I don't think that was due to COVID. I think that was just looking at the overall business cycle. But of course, COVID-19 has just exacerbated it. Well, another way of saying that is that the, the whole venture world was waiting for a shoe to drop. And they didn't expect a shoe the size of COVID to drop. But there was, yes, you're right. There was a general sort of sense of <clears throat> some sort of end is near protest walking around with signs out front. I, I remember that uh, back in the 80s, there were people walking around in front of the Apple offices with signs saying the end is near, thinking that Apple would certainly meet its demise. Same thing, kind of thing, sort of, you did have that feeling in the early part of the year that the late stage financings had gotten a little out over their skis and just all the investing in general was not really going to be able to sustain the pace that it had sustained. Yeah. But then what happens? Obviously, COVID-19 occurred. What do the numbers look like as COVID-19 begins to affect the economy? So... March really, you know, the deals that were done in March were kind of really done in February. So, you know, you look at the deal count in March, but those are deals that were in process and finished up in March. And those numbers were pretty good, 75. So, you know, most of what you would consider a good month in deal count. And then April ticked way down, back down to 51. So a very slow month in April. And that's, I think people just the shock of COVID arriving so suddenly in the world caused everyone to put the brakes on and try to reassess where they were. <clears throat> and I fully expected that to bleed over into May and maybe even have a, a worse number in May. But I think it's, uh, it's amazing to see that 85 is the deal count in May, including a lot of seed deals, not just follow on deals in established companies. There were a lot of early stage investments made and it, it just felt like the industry took stock of where it was, said, wow, this is disruptive and could be really, really, really good and interesting for a certain type of deal. And, you know, any, any deal that would benefit from accelerating the trend towards work from home was suddenly much more interesting. And so lo and behold, the deal count went up. And that, you know, when you think about it through that lens of, Adventure is about backing companies that take advantage of disruption or cause disruption. Certainly there was disruption here. And so it, it does kind of make sense that things bounced back. I just didn't anticipate that. And so I, I, I should have, you know, that was, that was a mistake. I should have guessed that it would go up. Well, I think that when we did this podcast episode a month ago, we said it'll be very interesting to see what that May number comes in at because we weren't certain it's going to be low. We weren't certain it was going to be high. We were really very much in a wait and see attitude. And again, as it turns out, May ended up being a very good month in terms of volume. Now, we should note, as you mentioned earlier, that this is just when the deals were announced and that it may be that those deals were finalized more in April. It may be that some people held off on announcing their deals until May, just because during April there was so much attention being drawn in and everything was focused on COVID-19. But it still reflects the remarkable resilience of the startup, startup ecosystem and the ability for it to kind of shrug things off and keep going. And as you point out, the disruption does produce opportunities. I had Josh Greinlinger of Jackson Square Ventures on a couple of episodes ago, 
And he mentioned that in his portfolio, the, the results were ranging from revenues down 90% to revenues up 900%. And in fact, one of the companies we previously talked about, OfferUp, has been seeing record volumes during the pandemic, which was not something we would have predicted. So it is, as always, a lesson that the future is difficult to predict. Well, I think the other thing we need to mention is that the stock market snapped back. And there were a couple of successful IPOs. The, the Vroom IPO was not in May, but it did, you know, that was recently. And the, when the public markets are behaving well, then it's a lot easier to invest in the private markets because you can possibly, you can foresee exits in the, in the reasonable, in a reasonable term. And so that really, I, I think that gets a decent amount of credit, the fact that the public markets recovered. Fair enough. Well, let us keep our fingers crossed. We'll continue monitoring the situation and we'll continue reporting the numbers and hopefully our audience will appreciate the continued context. Right. So let's move on to deals. Um, you know, we had, as we said, a bunch of deals in May to look at and there were some interesting ones and we're going to start off with just a science fiction deal. I mean, come on guys, Cold Fusion again. Uh, but sure enough, uh, Commonwealth Fusion is the name of the company. It's an MIT spinoff, a Series A, 84 million raised. It's a Massac Holdings, let it. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's just, you know, they're gonna solve the energy problem with uh, using Fusion, which is clean and, and infinite energy source. As you put it, Chris, they're, going to create a, uh, a small sun and try to keep that under control. And so what do you think about blitzscaling a business like that? Well, first, we should note that Commonwealth Fusion is not actually a cold fusion concept. It is using a tokamak concept, which is still hot fusion, just for those people who are scientific out there. did not want them to think we are ignorant of the different types of fusion. Ah, well, at least not both of us. So, okay, yes, keep going. So let's think about fusion. So fusion classically is a technology that has always been described as being 20 years away. And you and I can remember from our childhoods being told that fusion was going to come and it was going to bring limitless energy that would be too cheap to meter. And yet here we are today and I can assure you, I look at my electric bill and they're still charging me money. So what does this mean? Well, what it means is that it's difficult to make these kinds of technological changes actually come about. There's a lot of research that goes into it. There's a lot of hard work. And the question becomes, well, gosh, do we then just say this is never going to happen? Well, guess what? A long time ago, people said solar would never be practical. And today, renewable energy is actually lower cost than coal. There should never be another coal plant built in the history of mankind. And so there does come a time when it makes sense to bet on these new technologies. Now, is Commonwealth one of them? I don't know. But if we look at it from a blitz scalability perspective, it starts to tell us something. So obviously, the thing that we look at most of all is the network effects and land grab. And the question becomes, is fusion something where there are network effects? Do nuclear fusion plants generate more electricity or are they more valuable because more utilities use them? And I think the answer, unfortunately, is no. Uh, the, ob the obvious thing is each reactor is its own individual thing. It's going to generate electricity. In fact, they're financed as individual projects rather than as an entire collective. 
And so there really aren't any network effects. There is a certain level of land grab because once somebody has committed $20 billion to building a power plant, they're not just gonna throw it away and put in a new one very easily. So I would say there is some level of land grab, but it's still relatively low to most of the companies we look at. So probably a five out of 10. Yeah, so not big there. I mean, it, it, it's true that if somebody sunk $20 billion into a plant, you're not gonna put another one right next door. So there's a land grab element there, but if nobody else has this technology, then you're not engaged in a competitive land grab. It's not as though somebody else could say, oh yeah, I'm gonna bring my hot fusion reactor and, and I'm gonna take Milwaukee and you're only gonna get Madison. It's, uh, it, it, it's, if you're the only game in town, then you don't have a race. It's not a race to see who can cover the world the fastest. You can take your time and roll it out in a way that is economically smart. So that's, uh, yeah, that's why you don't get a big score there. The rest of the scores, uh, Chris, what do you think about the viral growth or distribution strategy? Uh, so we'll talk about that. But before we move on, let me just again emphasize the fact that this particular technology promises to make fusion practical doesn't mean it's the only technology that promises to make fusion practical. In fact, there are many companies pursuing fusion concepts of all kinds. And we shouldn't get lost in the common mistake that people make when investing in these sort of uh, deep tech companies or biotech companies and saying, wow, this is the only way to do it. In fact, there are usually multiple ways to do it. So there probably is more competition than that discussion you led was leading on. So there is still a reason to move quickly if there's a land grab, but the land grab is simply that. It is not a full land grab. It is not something where if somebody puts up a plant and you come along with a technology that's 10x better, that they're gonna say, no, I'm not gonna switch because there are competing utilities, there's increased demands for electricity, so it's not a full land grab. Now, when it comes to viral growth or distribution, the beauty of this is it really taps into existing distribution networks. Right? The whole point is you're generating this power in this plant and it has to go into the grid. And the grid is a well-established place where there are a series of players, these publicly regulated utilities, who are able to generate and sell electricity to you and I. And so when it comes to installing and getting this power to my house, it's not like Commonwealth Fusion has to dig a trench and put a separate cable in and put the electricity into my house. They're just gonna plug into the grid. And so that means that there is a high degree of distribution already in place since we gave this a nine out of 10. Makes sense to me. Uh, product market fit uh, gets a 10. Market size obviously gets a 10. This might be the world's biggest market. Um, so, you know, and product market fit, you know, if you're producing electrons, then you're, you're doing your job. So there isn't a whole lot of work to do there. It's essentially a commodity. Um, Organizational scalability, operational scalability, obviously some challenges there, Chris. Yeah, this is something that is difficult because if you think about it, it's like any major utility project. There's a lot of scalability involved in terms of being able to actually build the thing. And then in terms of operating it, uh, nuclear power plants are not easy enough to operate that somebody like Homer Simpson can have a job there. 
right? These are very serious operations that require 24-7 monitoring. Even though there's a lot of automation involved, I'm sure there's still live human beings who are required, engineers who are going to be working on a relatively consistent basis, especially since these are new technologies. So I think we gave them relatively low, lower scores for, for organizational scalability, seven out of 10. Again, the beauty is it's electrons. It's not like you have customer service people, but you do need those construction crews and engineers. And then operational scalability, about five out of 10, simply because it takes a lot of work. You can get some scalability, some economies of scope by, and scale by having a centralized monitoring system, but you still need people on site. You're just not going to get away with it. When you are building an artificial sun, nobody says, you know what? You don't need to have anyone on site. Yeah, and just vast amounts of investment capital. So a, a real hurdle to overcome there. Now, when you take away the fact that it's not a land grab, then the score is a 64. But if, so it's, it's, it's a great deal per se. Like it's, it's a great investment that you don't have to blitz scale. The way to get a high blitz scaling score is to have this network effect or land grab component so that if you are the one that wins, then you do get all that value. It is yours forever. And so that's, that's why the score is lower if you don't have that. But in this case, you don't have that. But the penalty, like, I don't think it should be something that you'd shy away from investing because of that. The fact that you don't have to blitz scale it is a kind of a good thing in this case. Uh, it, it, maybe a competitive technology will emerge that's just as good or nearly as good. That could cause you suddenly to take that five up to a higher score for the land grab component. So you might get a higher score there, uh, but right now it's a 64 is the final score. A good score, as you recall, is an 80 or more, and a, a pretty good score is a 70 or more. 64 is not terrible, but it just means yeah, you don't blitz scale this one. It's, it's not going to be that. And at the end of the day, that's not necessarily a bad thing. When it comes to nuclear power, creating artificial suns, playing with the fundamental forces of the universe, move fast and break things doesn't fill us with a lot of confidence. So I think it's a-okay that people are taking this cautiously. Yes, let's not move fast and break things with our miniature sun. Okay, so uh, moving on, there's a company called Clyde that uh, got a series of lay $14 million round. And Clyde does a very simple thing. You know, those uh, when you're checking out and it says, do you want to buy a two-year warranty? And you say no, or you say yes. I always say no, but some people say yes. This is a very big business and a very high margin insurance business. Uh, there are almost no claims against these insurance products. And so the... <clears throat> The problem that they're solving, that Clyde is solving, is that a lot of smaller retailers don't have that in their shopping cart, and so they're missing out on that high margin sale. And Clyde wants to help smaller retailers get that higher margin add-on to the shopping cart. So they, they are matching up, they're creating a marketplace. It's the retailer that needs to make it available to the consumer. And so the retailer and the insurance provider are going to meet in this marketplace that's called Clyde. And it's a big business. And so what do you think about the network effects land grab here? Well, let's begin by just admitting that this is a business that basically preys on the consumer in a real sense. Uh, speaking of Homer Simpson, one of the things that Homer Simpson did to demonstrate 
And there was one point he underwent a, a procedure which removed crayons he jammed into his brain. And it caused him to actually develop a normal level of intelligence, at which point he realized he preferred life as someone who was stupid. Because once he got his level of intelligence up, like Flowers for Algernon, he discovered he couldn't actually relate to the regular people around him anymore. And so he actually made himself stupid again. And one of the ways he <laughs> demonstrated that he was stupid again, he says, I just bought some lottery tickets and extended warranties. Because both of them are attacks on people who can't are attacks on people who can't do math. So let's just set that aside because our job here is not to judge the morality of a particular business. Our job is to figure out is it blitz scalable or not. Now, when it comes to network effects and land grab, the beauty here is both of these are actually at play. So there are network effects because you are serving as a marketplace, bringing together the fragmented world of small retailers and the fragmented set of suppliers that can supply these extended warranties. So there are already marketplace dynamics, but then there's also a land grab element because if you are able to become the default platform for offering these things on the big distribution platforms like a Shopify or what have you, then you're also land grabbing and providing a way to be the incumbent player. And this is something where because of both of those, it's actually pretty scalable. It's got a lot of network effects and winner-take-most characteristics. It's not purely winner-take-most characteristics because at the end of the day, let's say you're a retailer, you can still switch providers. If someone else comes to you and makes you a better offer, you can say, okay, we're going to pull that out and push this in. It's just going to make it as a change into the shopping carts, much like Square was able to come, sorry, Stripe was able to come along and substitute in for previous payment accepting tools. So it's not perfect, but it's still pretty good. And we gave it a nine out of 10. Yeah, so nine out of 10, great score on a very important metric. Let's move on to viral growth and distribution. You know, it looks like distributing this product is going to be tricky because you've got to get every retailer, all these little retailers, and there are thousands and thousands of them. You think that all you ever do is interact with Amazon, but it's not true. There are a lot of retailers out there and they all want, <clears throat> they all want this, but contacting them all, big pain in the neck. Anybody who's ever funded a, a company that markets to small business knows how difficult they are to reach and sell to. It's, it's almost as painful as selling to a large business, but the, the dollar value of each sale is so much lower. So it's, it's a really tough place. The small SMB market is what it's called. And that, that's just a tough place to make money. Once you do, once you get all those people on board, then you've got something great because it's such a difficult puzzle to solve, but getting them on board is hard. And furthermore, there's no virality. I don't know about you. I've never been at a party where people are saying, let me tell you about the extended warranty I just got. Yeah, no, there's going to be a lot of PR that you're going to have to do, just awareness campaigns. It's expensive and it takes a long time. And these, these small retailers don't talk. They're, they're mom and pop, but you're right. They, they don't meet at cocktail parties. They might meet once a year at a convention, but conventions aren't even happening right now during the COVID crisis. So it's just going to be hard to get them on board one by one. There might be some leverage you can do through Shopify or something like that, but it's, it's, it's going to be tough and it's going to be a slog and they, they get a six. So it's six out of 10, not a very good score. You know, there, there is some, so it's not a two. So there, you know, there is probably some leverage you can have through trade rags and, and through conventions, as I mentioned, but really this is going to be a long time to get all the retailers on that you need to make this a very big business. 
So that's a nine and a six and product market fit. Chris, what do you speculate there? Well, it's really hard to say, and it depends on who you're saying the product market fit is for. But if you're saying the product market fit is for the retailer who wants to make more money off their transactions, the fit is very high because this is a high margin product that easily fits into the shopping cart flow, does not reduce the chances of the transaction going through. So this is probably pretty high. We actually gave it 10 out of 10 just because, as you can tell, there are entire companies like Best Buy where the majority of their profits come from these extended warranties. Yeah, from Homer Simpson. Okay, so market size, uh, you know, seems like a pretty big market. It is a huge market. Again, it's not, at some point in time, you know, there are not all tens are created equal because obviously the market for extended warranties is necessarily a subset of the overall e-commerce market, which is you know, 10, 11, 12, 20, whatever you want to call it. But it's still plenty big enough to be a 10 out of 10. Right, and then we had uh, the entire energy market, the entire world's energy market. We gave that a 10 too. And so yes, all 10s are not created equal. The, the, some are more equal than others, but in this case, it's still a big enough market that you can grow enormously into it. And, and really that's not what's going to bound the valuation of the company. Uh, gross margin, very high in insurance products as we already talked about. So we gave that a 10. And we're down to scalability on the organizational side and the operational side. What do you think about that? Well, I think that the scalability is very good here. From an organizational scalability perspective, they're not dealing with the end consumers. They're just the platform to connect them to the actual people providing these extended warranties. So there will be some filtering up of escalations or complaints or things like that, but it's relatively small. And as a result, even though it's not as great as something like, a, say, an Instagram where you essentially don't need any people, there still aren't that many folks required. So we gave it an org scalability, eight out of 10. Yep, and then operationally, really a 10 out of 10, there's not a lot to do here. So, um, total score is 73 so an okay score but not quite an 80 so we're not excited about this company it's and really believe- losing out because of that lack of viral growth or distribution it's just a slog to make this happen and what that tells us is hey you know what good business you can probably hang on to the market but you have to be really really good at customer acquisition in this case really really good at reaching out to all those fragmented merchants Absolutely, a microscope on the unit equals economics. It's, it's so important to acquire those customers as efficiently as possible. Let's move on to another marketplace called Node. And in this case, Node is spelled in a way that allows you to acquire a URL, K-N-O-W-D-E. So Node, is how the, that's how they spell Node in this case. And they do something quite simple. And so this is where the people who need chemicals and ingredients meet the manufacturers who make them. It's a series A and it was 14 million uh, San Jose company and their Sequoia is in this deal. And so, you know, we like this one, Chris, it it got a pretty good score. So let's run down how they got there. Uh, Network effects. 
Yeah, so Node is a classic two-sided marketplace. It is a relatively fragmented market. There are a bunch of suppliers for these various chemicals and polymers and other ingredients. The way to think about it is to think about a marketplace in terms of you know, the transactions. Are the transactions high value? Are they high consideration? Is there any differentiation? And while you can argue that for some chemicals, it is purely a commodity. If I'm just going to buy sodium chloride, i.e. salt, it's not like we have a marketplace for salt. But these are specialty chemicals and polymers. There are substitutions available. And so it does actually matter. Moreover, the quality, the purity, uh, these things are all relevant. So as a result, we gave it a full two-sided marketplace, 10 out of 10. Yeah, and well-earned. I think if you become the place where these buyers and sellers meet, then it's going to be very difficult to displace you. What about vital growth and distribution? It, it's not a 10 here, is it? So it's not quite a 10 because, again, where is the virality? When we talk about these two-sided marketplaces, a marketplace like a Craigslist or an eBay really wins because it is a consumer-to-consumer -consumer kind of play. And so every person who is a buyer is also a potential seller. In this case, you are generally connecting people who are either buyers or sellers. So a DuPont is a seller and a Procter & Gamble is a buyer. And so there isn't that same kind of leakage back and forth that creates that virality. And in terms of distribution, yes, there are some existing distribution channels, but these are distribution channels that don't want Node to succeed necessarily. Everyone who's been busy working as an intermediary in this business aren't looking at Node and saying, this is fantastic. And so there is some challenge. They have to actually go out there and sign up the customers. And it seems like what they've done is a very clever strategy of going after the biggest names, basically lighthouse accounts and saying, look, if we get DuPont and Procter Gamble on the platform, to some extent, that's going to just drive everyone else there because everyone recognizes those names. Indeed. And the other thing is that if you're going direct to the manufacturer, the pricing might be better. And so that could really help the, the buyers find this and say, wow, how did you get that for a wholesale price? Oh, really? The, the manufacturer is willing to sell it in smaller quantities at that price? Then I'm in. I imagine there are also distributors on this platform, but um, that would be an area of due diligence is to really understand the distribution here better. And so we, you know, we gave it a seven, but um, we could learn more and, and change that number as we dig in. Product market fit, uh, you know, it seems great. We gave it a 10. That's speculative. But generally, if everything that we believe is true is true, then there's, there's no real uh, challenge here for either side to love the product. Uh, market size, Chris. Yes, the market size for this is absolutely enormous. Industrial chemicals are a huge market. Obviously, you can think of companies like DuPont, which are literally Dow components. So this is a 10 out of 10. Yeah. And gross margin, we're in a marketplace, and we always give marketplaces the benefit of the doubt with gross margin. And reminder to all of our listeners, it is not the overall marketplace margin where you take 10 or 20%. It's the margin on that 10 or 20% that you take as the marketplace operator. And so that is very high margin revenue. It's essentially you know, close to 100% gross margin revenue that you take there. So very, uh, very nice gross margin characteristics to this, to this business model. Uh, scalability, uh, you know, we're not taking possession of any of these things. 
So that's the beauty of being a marketplace instead of a distributor. And yeah. so organizational scalability, what do you think? Well, there is still some challenge here because at the end of the day, when you have these very demanding kinds of buyers, people who are prepared to spend six, seven, eight figures on these purchases, they do sometimes want to talk to someone and they expect customer service. So because of the nature of the transaction and the importance of the transaction, you do have to have customer service. So we can't give it a full 10 out of 10, but an eight out of 10 sounds good. Great. And operationally, what are you, how are you thinking about it? The beauty of this is they don't touch the chemicals. This is a marketplace. We'll give it a 10 out of 10 on operational scalability. Really, all they got to do is keep everything running. So 10s across the board, except for organizational scalability, which is of relatively light importance. That's something that's readily solvable. So ultimately, the reason it's an 83 and not a much higher number, 83, remember, a very, very good, exciting score, but not perfect, obviously. So the reason it's not higher than 83 is gets back to distribution, which is often the case with these two-sided marketplaces. Sometimes it's really hard to get one side or the other to show up. And that's, you know, that's what uh, takes all the investment capital and why they don't just <laughs> explode like a, uh, <clears throat> like a match uh, lighting a tinderbox. So we have uh, Node, as, we, as you recall, getting an 83. That's quite a good score. So that's, this is a company that we're going to be paying attention to. And the hottest deal in Silicon Valley in May, Chris, which, which, which deal would you say that was? So the deal everyone is talking about is Clubhouse, which is an audio social network. And we love social networks in general. They have really strong network effects. They have really strong virality because they're a pure software business. They have really great gross margins and really good scalability. So for all these reasons, anytime you can come up with a new social network and it has the possibility of becoming big, then there's huge value to be had. Obviously, Facebook is the godfather of social networks in terms of its size. And over in Asia, you have things like Tencent, which runs WeChat. Here in the United States, even social networks that are a small fraction of the size of Facebook, something like a Snap, for example, can still be worth a colossal amount of money. So we watch any emergent social network with a lot of interest. The tough part with Clubhouse is we just don't know is this something that's a fad? Is this something that really drives incredible usage? Because people in Silicon Valley have gotten excited about things before. You may recall some of the other social networks that came along that had a lot of excitement among the literati or rather the Silicon literati and did not go anywhere. So I'm thinking of companies like Path, for example, which was a social network, which was inherently self-limiting because the idea was you would only have, I think, 150 connections. So you would prioritize connections. That was started by celebrity founder Dave Morin, and it didn't ultimately work out. You had companies like Secret, for example, and Secret was one of these anonymous social networks where people would post secrets. And in fact, you've got a lot of attention, but ultimately, like many of these, it degenerated into a lot of anonymous nonsense. And so it is not a sure thing. Capturing a new kind of interaction that is able to carve out a niche separate from Facebook is challenging. And so that's the big question mark with Clubhouse. What is the product market fit. Is it a fad or is it something that's going to be here for the long term? My question is, does it really scale? So right now it's invite only and it's very boutique. 
and some pretty famous people are having discussions on there and you get to listen in on their discussion, sort of the way with Twitter, you get to sort of have a, a glimpse of the life of a celebrity if you follow them on Twitter. And in the case of Clubhouse, it's audio, you listen to their conversation, but it's, uh, you know, like once you have too many people in on a conversation, as we all know, that doesn't work very well. You get your Zoom call up to about 15 people and scaling starts to break down. So I worry that really the user experience and, and that gets back to product market fit as you were talking about might not scale. And so not only might it just be a fad, but once it gets big, it might really break down from an appeal point of view, particularly for the, you know, the, the re relatively famous people who feel like they're part of an exclusive club as soon as everybody can get into the club, then they kind of want to move on to the next thing. So I just don't know where this is going. Their money is from Andreessen Horowitz, uh, clearly a great investor who knows how to make this kind of thing work. So I think they've got great backing. There was, I think, an enormous bidding war for this company as far as who was going to get to fund them. And a tip of the hat to Andreessen for winning it. I'm not sure how they did that, but I'm sure there's a really fascinating story behind that. Yes, I think that it was quite competitive, and it's hard to say. I don't think that in the end, Andreessen won by offering the highest valuation or deal terms. I think they were able to persuade the founders that they could provide the most help in growing the company. And that is an important message to founders and investors, which is it's about the fit between the two parties. I think that we'll be watching Clubhouse with a lot of interest. I will say I have not participated in it yet, so I refuse to make any definitive judgments. I think that it's difficult to do so until you've actually tried it out. And I am very eager to continue following the story over the coming years. Yeah, Chris and I, we scored Snap, uh, I guess I think it was a couple of weeks ago in a different uh, context, and we gave it 100. There was really no segment of the company or, or element of the company that got less than a 10. And in this case, Clubhouse is kind of the same way, except for the product market fit, which we just don't know yet. So tens across the board, except for product market fit, which gets a seven. Nonetheless, that results in a score of 95 in our scoring algorithm. So this is something that we definitely need to pay attention to and watch closely. And it would be nice to actually have a chip down on this one, just in case it does realize its potential. Yes, and that brings about a good point about venture investing in general, which is, of course, it seems very definitive when we provide these numbers and we say this company looks like it's split scale and this company looks like it's not. But we need to be humble and realize that chance and circumstance and unexpected things happen. So by no means should you say, okay, you know, we gave them a good score in the Blitz Scalability podcast and therefore everyone should run out and buy the stock. What we're saying is you have a better chance of this becoming an iconic company. Well, and let's not forget, we, we're not evaluating the team or the technology or any of the other important elements. I mean, execution makes an enormous difference here. And Facebook was in no way the first social network of its kind, but it was the best execution by far and now is worth well in excess of $200 billion. So it's a... Um, it's a really an execution play in combination with a great fundamental business model. And this is more to discussion of the business model and 
the next level of due diligence that you do after you identify a great potential business is to really understand who's operating it, who's backing it, what's the technology underlying it, if there's a technology risk here, and the other elements that you always look at as an investor. Excellent. Well, Scott, thank you for coming on. One last point of fact. As of right now, the market capitalization of Facebook is $673 billion. So chalk that one up for blitz scalability. On behalf of Scott Johnson of Blitzscaling Ventures, I'm Chris Yeh, and thank you for listening.